Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the ASHP Pharmacy Leadership Podcast. This series focuses on leadership topics within pharmacy practice, including the business of pharmacy, development of leadership skills, career transitions, and more. My name is Megan Musselman, a clinical pharmacy specialist in emergency medicine, pharmacy residency program director at North Kansas City Hospital, and I will be your host for today's podcast. Today, we are sitting down with Thomas Ladone, a pediatric clinical pharmacy specialist at University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland. And we are going to discuss expanding pharmacy services to the pediatric emergency department. So thank you, Thomas, for joining today. So to get us started off, I would like to turn it over to you to talk about, you know, how do you start this type of service and getting management approval and getting supervisor buy-in? Yes, definitely. So this is definitely a big component just to make sure you have support behind you as you're expanding clinical pharmacy services. So I would say that one of the biggest things that helped was really understanding where funding for the position came from. So whether you're affiliated with a school of pharmacy or if it's coming from the pharmacy department at the hospital or even the medical department, this really helps to really understand who are the key players that are backing you. And then to kind of build off that, take it one step forward and meet with them to see what their expectations for the position would be. So for example, when I began here, I met with the director of the pediatric emergency department here, as well as some of the senior nursing leadership, and really just kind of asked them a bunch of questions to see what they were hoping to get out of having a pharmacist in the emergency department. And then on the other side of it, also just meeting with pharmacy leadership to really just kind of engage what their vision was for having a clinical pharmacist down there, what their expectations are, requirements for the position. So thankfully, there was a lot of flexibility since there was no pharmacist before me in this position. So there was a lot of creativity and productive conversations there. But I think really just kind of understanding what everyone's vision is for the new position helps a long way getting managerial and supervisor buy-in. That's great. So just to further work off that. So once you got those stakeholders in place, you got that buy-in in place, was there anything moving forward that you implemented, making sure you're looking at metrics or looking at this change model to ensure that you were getting the outcomes that were proposed? Yes, definitely. As pharmacists, you know, we focus a lot on the data and being able to support things using data. So one of my main focuses was to almost try to create either a medication use evaluation or a quality assurance project to evaluate some of the interventions that we were doing to kind of track progress. And so one example would be that we have a process in our emergency department that we give a dose of dexamethasone for asthma, and then we give a to-go dose to be taken the next day for asthmatics to make sure that we're improving compliance with their steroid course. And so when I started here, the process was not perfectly in line. And so I worked to improve it, make it more standardized, order sets. And then I wound up doing a research project with one of our pharmacy residents here and showed that the amount of discrepancies and prescribing and missed doses all decreased after we made those interventions. So that was just one example of one of the research slash quality insurance projects we did to kind of assess the intervention level, as well as just collaborating with the other disciplines. So being able to sit on a variety of different committees, such as resuscitation, sepsis, QA with the nurses, physicians, we're able to kind of track those metrics as well. So they'll bring projects and different things there. And then I can kind of help take them forward through pharmacy and therapeutics or report back to see where we can kind of keep moving things along. So definitely just trying to use 
different tools such as yeah research projects or medication use evaluations to assess those interventions and then present that to higher leadership to get a change done within the emergency department. That dexamethasone project sounds really interesting. Have you been able to translate that same process with any other workflow? Because I could see that being a huge patient and physician satisfier in the emergency department. Yes, definitely. So it actually came up very recently. So Maryland passed a new law for being able to provide patients with a full course of NPEP if they have HIV exposure. And so it was a very similar process where we needed to figure out the logistics of how do we get the medication to the bedside in the emergency department without having to force the patient to go up to the outpatient pharmacy or, you know, have them go to an outside pharmacy. So very similar process there was getting all the key stakeholders involved. So our outpatient pharmacy, our inpatient pharmacy, as well as our physician who kind of had the sexual abuse component of our emergency department, we all collaborated together to help improve that process to make sure that we can send patients out straight from the emergency department with the proper therapies that they need to complete their full course. So that was kind of another example more recently that we implemented something similar that we did with the dexamethasone. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing. Just listening to you talk, it shows how much that the presence of being in the emergency department, this kind of service you put together, you have a lot of different customer service agents. And so you work directly with the patients, you have multiple different departments, you have physicians, nursing staff, and other healthcare professionals. So what are some effective strategies you put together to communicate with all these different stakeholders, as well as advocate for your position with the service? Yeah, that's a great question. I have to figure out how to bridge that gap and show them that I was there to help, not be a roadblock to patient care. So honestly, one of the things that helped the most was just identifying that nurses tend to be the heartbeat for a lot of units. And so, you know, they kind of stay consistent a lot of times, whereas physicians, residents can filter through. So just really meeting with the nurses and listening to parts of their workflow that can be challenging, finding ways to improve that and just being a team player. So, you know, as pharmacists, we can do a lot of different things. And so just, you know, helping draw up medications, help find things, just kind of going the extra step, running to pharmacy to pick up a medication. So just finding little ways to, yeah, just build that teamwork, I think went a long way for me. And then it was actually a nurse who advocated that I stop standing at a computer on wheels and be sitting next to the attending and they made a sign for me. And so yeah, I sit down next to the attending and I'm able to listen to all the resident presentations. I think too, when you enter a new service, there might be culture that's been there for a while or practice that has been there for a while, and it might be alarming to you. And I think just really triaging what to low hanging fruit. So for example, this dexamethasone correct a very simple thing for me to do and it went a long way whereas there might be some larger fires that you want to eventually put out but just know that that might take time and helped a lot with just building communication trust and have the teamwork where now they're very much like we don't want to do something unless Thomas is involved with it so yeah just kind of seeing that progression with building rapport with the team and just you know making sure that you're methodically thinking about okay there's a lot of things that need to get done how best can I help the unit in that moment and what are things that I can kind of work on later on as I get more comfortable and build more of a trust. I think all those things are valuable things, whether you're translating it to a pediatric service line versus an adult service line. And I agree that, you know, communication and being part of the team is integral to be effective. And outside of effectiveness, I think was something that we would all, especially me being predominantly from the adult side of emergency medicine, would want to know is, is there any safety measures or medication safety processes you have put in place with establishing the service line? Because knowing that it's already a high-risk environment as is, but looking at this more vulnerable patient population, I would be curious to know what you have done to make it a safe practice. 
Yes, definitely. Great question. A lot of my focus was how can I kind of create a sustainable project or initiative to help the team when I'm not physically there in the emergency department and really focus on resuscitation so that it's usually for anyone, the most scary thing that could happen is a cardiac arrest or intubation. And so we have arrest binders that we use in our emergency department. And so basically how it works is it has a huge weight range. So anything from one kilogram all the way up to 150 kilograms. And we essentially have all the critical meds that you would need for different situations. So whether it's RSI, cardiac arrest, DKA, and very quick tool to show you, okay, the patient's weight is this. Based on the product we have, this is the volume. And so that helps a lot with our nurses feeling comfortable in those settings, drawing up medication. So I review that annually to make sure that that's accurate, add things to it, remove things as drug shortages change. I also do new nurse orientation. And so I have a whole section and a PowerPoint that I go through to just kind of discuss medication pearls, common things that we see in the emergency department that we might not see on other units and how we approach that. And then also just general education to the provider staff on, you know, kind of our operational workflow. So why we do one-time orders, because we drop a lot of doses in the emergency department, whereas patients who are admitted to the ICU or the floor get their doses sent from pharmacy. So just making sure providers are aware that we do one-time doses so that an entire bag of a medication that we're drawing out the dose from doesn't get given by accident. And so that's a big component is just, you know, creating those different teaching opportunities and initiatives to help make sure the team feel supported as well as just updating guidelines and order sets. So I've worked on a numerous amount of order sets to make sure that they have everything in there, the dosing is accurate for them, and then just reviewing the med safety errors. So all med safety errors that get submitted in our department, I get sent the copy. And of course, when they're medication related, I follow up and, you know, if we need to provide an in-service or I need to follow up with the pharmacist or something within the operational process broke down, those are all things that I'll kind of follow up on to make sure safe medication practices is occurring even when I'm not physically present in the emergency department. I have questions about your recess binder. That sounds great. So we have something similar where I practice, but we go through the color-coded Braslow cart and do that. And that's how we follow ours. Do you have something similar or how have you guys done that to adequately try to capture weight for your patients so you can make sure you're working through the right dosing strategies? And I love that you use volume too, because those situations are always chaotic. So it's good to make it as simple as possible. So I'm just curious how you've tried to make that safer and more streamlined whenever those emergencies are happening. Yes, definitely. So we actually used to have a Braslow cart as well, in addition to our code cards. So we have about three pediatric code cards in our emergency department and the Braslow cart because we felt like the code cards were actually being underutilized and but actually have more supplies and appropriate supplies in them compared to the Braslow cart. So we will still use the Braslow tape. So if we have an infant coming in cardiac arrest, the first thing we do is lay the Braslow tape on the bed so that it's not forgotten. And I usually will make eye contact with the attending and say, I'm going to use this predicted weight right now. And then we can adjust if needed. And so that the team leader is on the same page. So I can at least start drawing up epinephrine doses. And then if the patient comes in and they're 4.5 kilos and we said four, we can add more or we can shoot some out. At least we're prepared to give that first initial dose. So that's kind of how we use our Braza and sort of go with an estimated weight based on the patient's age and using that Braza tape to confirm it once they actually hit the bed and then adjust from there. But we predominantly only use our crash carts now. 
now because we found that we were misplacing supplies in the Braslo or didn't have everything we need, whereas the code cards are fully stocked with everything we need. And so it took a little while for our team to get used to it, but now we're exclusively just using our crash carts to resuscitate patients and have moved away from having that Braslo cart. I think a big part of it factors into joint commission requirements as well. And so that was another reason why we sort of moved away from that and just did the crash carts. Perfect. Thank you. That's exciting. So all the stuff you're talking about makes me excited because, you know, we have had flux where we get more pediatric patients than normal and putting together processes to be prepared and make sure we're doing safe and effective practices. So just for somebody who's new to this and wants to start putting in some of these processes, do you have anything that I should know that I may have challenges or barriers or obstacles that I may want to think of that I might need to overcome? Yes, definitely. So I feel like I was going to probably encounter this barrier just coming as this was my first job out of residency, but I think it was a little amplified just because it was a new service and that, yeah, just really balancing your work-life balance and then also your clinical and administrative responsibilities. And so something I felt was really important in the beginning was to just always be present so that they can get used to seeing me, seeing my face, just being comfortable with having me around. And so I was really intentional, especially in those first six months in building relationships and just being present. Then we also, as pharmacists, have all these other administrative tasks that we need to get done, such as research projects and guidelines and order sets. And so I think just knowing that you might have to give yourself a little grace there, knowing that unlike as a resident, you don't have to necessarily get everything done in that one year time frame. So with all the projects that came across my plate, I wrote them all down and kind of determined, okay, what are the ones that I need to focus on right this second? Because it you know, may impact patient care a little bit more versus, okay, this is a cost-saving project that I can probably wait a few months on to evaluate later on. So I think just, yeah, finding that balance. And then, as I mentioned earlier, creating those pools to allow for continued pharmacy support, even when you're not physically there. So just the order sets and the guidelines and the pathways, I have a lot more peace knowing that when I leave, there's tools in place that the medical team can use to kind of help supplement if I was going to be there physically in person. And then, yeah, I think I mentioned something similar to this, that especially when you come into a new service where there was no pharmacist before, there may be some alarming practices and culture there. And I think not reacting in a very accusatory way or like understanding that that's how they've been doing it and that's what works for them and figuring out ways to better understand why they do it that way. Is it because, you know, there's a breakdown and it being delivered from the pharmacy and so that's why they're overriding or whatever it may be. Just trying to understand first why they're doing it because most of the time people aren't doing things in a malicious way. They may not just realize there's a safer way or a more efficient way to do something. So I think just approaching those big practices that may be alarming there. And yeah, just, you know, knowing you're not going to be able to fix everything in one day. I think I was, you know, very eager coming out of residency to just take on the new service, but just understanding that things take time, building rapport and trust takes time and just making sure that, yeah, you're staying on top of your to-do list, but not putting the pressure on of having to get it all done at once. And then from there, I was able to also get more involved in committees. So that helps a lot because there might be things that are going on you don't even know about, but then once you join these committees, for example, there was a sepsis community that met regularly and they were discussing antibiotics and it was happening you know, without me knowing. And then once I became part of that committee, I was able to be much more involved in the decision-making and explaining why we're doing what we're doing with antibiotics for our patients who come in with presumed sepsis. So I think just, yeah, figuring out, getting your grip first in the clinical setting, and then you can start adding on those administrative tasks like committees and you get more projects from there and more involvement more collaboration. And honestly, a lot of my research so far has just been from, you know, projects that physicians wanted to work on with me. So that kind of, you know, can happen later on. It doesn't have to 
happen all at once in the first six months or a year that you're in this new service. Yes, I echo everything you said, just from like, I think any practice setting, especially in the emergency department where we're go, go, go and move at a fast pace that relationships are vital for everything and building those first before trying to change everything is huge and making sure you establish those relationships and have an effective team. It just works so much better if you spend time doing that first. Yeah. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. And I want to thank Thomas for joining us today to discuss the process of establishing new clinical services and helpful tips in a pediatric emergency department. Find more member-exclusive content, including resources for self-development, leading pharmacy enterprises and teams, and practice management on the ASHP website. Thank you for joining us. And if you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to at ASHP Official Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.